The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have heard her on uh, numerous radio shows, also TV. She's been on Dateline 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and she even had her own 90-minute PBS special uh, a couple years ago called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit kci.org slash privacypiracy. Evening, Mari. Well, we have a great show tonight, Lloyd. We have a real hero. He is a U.S. attorney and an identity theft expert, and he is really doing a fabulous job in the state of Oregon. Let me tell you a little bit about Sean Hoare. He has served with the United States Department of Justice in Eugene, Oregon, beautiful place, as an assistant United States attorney since 1991. His caseload consists primarily of complex white-collar and high-tech crime issues, including identity theft and internet fraud, which we know is growing like leaps and bounds. He is a member of a national network of assistant United States attorneys who provide legal assistance in computer crime emergencies. He coordinates an annual regional financial crimes and digital evidence conference in Oregon, and he coordinates an annual national seminar on identity theft that he just did just recently. He even teaches a course on cyber identity theft at the University of Oregon School of Law. And he's, he also coordinates this CyberSafe initiative, which he's going to tell us about, which is a public-private venture to educate end users of the Internet about computer safety, because that's where we're seeing a huge growth in identity theft. Prior to joining the United States Department of Justice, uh, Sean served as an assistant district attorney for Lane County in Eugene, Oregon, from 1987 to 1991. He's done so many wonderful things, and we are so thrilled to have him. So, Sean, thank you for joining us tonight. Well, thank you, Mari. Hopefully I can live up to that introduction. Oh, you are even better than that. So so tell us, first of all, how is it um, that you became involved in the prosecution of cybercrime? Well, you know, it was interesting. I guess it was probably nine or ten years ago. Um, I, an FBI agent and I had uh, started to do a few of these cases, and we were concerned that conventional white-collar crime was going to immediately transition to the Internet. Uh, in law enforcement, we hadn't seen much of it yet, but we also recognized that oftentimes in law enforcement, we're way behind the eight ball. So we uh, formed a, a small working group, literally six or eight individuals, uh, a couple local detectives, a local prosecutor, and myself. And we sat around a table uh, trying to identify those issues that we might see coming down the pike and on the Internet. And at that point, we identified um, 
just three or four, probably um, criminal copyright infringement, uh, system intrusions, uh, trade secret theft, and then, of course, conventional fraud that was going to transition and what has now blossomed into full-blown identity theft. Um, but at the time, we recognized that since we were just trying to grasp what was going to take place, the private sector probably had no clue that we were concerned about it or that we could help out. So we decided that we needed to do some outreach. And about a week after we met for the first time, we went over to the University of Oregon, uh, who had the, was the largest Internet service provider here at the time, and met with uh, members of their computing center, meaning the folks that actually direct the user services over at the University of Oregon. And, you know, I was just blown away at the level of intelligence and professionalism of these folks. They spoke, you know, seven planes of reality or seven planes of intelligence above mine. Right. Um, but the bottom line is we told them who we were, that we were interested in, uh, you know, system intrusions or criminal copyright infringement. And all of a sudden, they uh, a week later, they referred to me one of the largest uh, cr- criminal copyright infringement cases that we've seen. And it turned out about to be the first... Um, prosecution in the United States under the NET Act, which is the uh, No Electronic Theft Act. So that's kind of how we got our start, and things have just uh, exploded since that time. So what was that case? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was a case where um, they noticed that they had some congestion, if you will, on their Internet traffic, and they went to look at a port on their server and recognized that it was uh, uploading and downloading a tremendous amount of information and it was causing serious problems in the, the traffic flow uh, in their data pipes over at the University of Oregon. And they recognized it was all what appeared to be um, infringing software. But literally every type of music, um, business, or other uh, video type of uh, software, um, it, had, it was what we call war, a Juarez site, meaning it was all criminally infringed or, or uh, criminal copyright infringement uh, software. Pirating, so the, basically. Well, it, was, it was all pirating. Things yeah, that uh, had yeah. been pirating from businesses. Uh, and other places, and and it was it was so much information that I don't know that they had seen that much at that time. So they immediately mm. called uh, those of us who were at the meeting with them a week earlier. Um, it turns out to me, I, I looked up in the, it was the first case I had had referred to me like that, so I happened to look in our criminal code. It <laughs> looked like it was a, a crime to me. We investigated it. We subsequently served a search warrant, and sure enough, we identified the, an individual who was hosting a Juarez site on the um, Internet um, system with the University of Oregon. And it turns out we, uh, we ultimately charged him under the NET Act. Uh, he pled guilty, and it was the first case in the United States uh, that had been charged under that statute. And it was a case of United States versus Jeffrey uh, Levy, L-E-V-Y, if I recall correctly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you sent me something about that. That is fascinating. So so what a coincidence, huh, that they just they, they came upon that just after meeting with you. Divine intervention, huh? Well, well it occurred to me that there's just so much of it happening out there, and uh, you know, you get what you ask for. That's right. We, st- we started to do a little outreach, and we recognized there's an awful lot of this stuff happening out there, That, and the public and the private sector really had no idea that there were other resources with which to deal with those things. Sean, so did you have to become a techie, or were you already pretty uh, cyber cyber bright? <laughs> well, I'm one of these guys that type much faster than I write, and mm-hmm. so way back in the <laughs> late 70s, early 80s, I used to use, I guess, was it the old Commodore 59 or whatever it was, the old uh, tiny monochrome computer to do word processing when other people weren't using computers yet. And when I was in law school, I wrote a, a quite a bit, including a law review article that was published having to do with um, changing some criminal procedure rules. And had I not used word processing, I'm not quite sure how I would have done that. But because I have used word processing for you know many, many years, people assumed that because I had my own computer and I typed a lot while others were still using pens and papers. <laughs> that you were um, savvy, right? <laughs> that, I, that I was savvy. And so I came, you know, 
became known as as a computer guy, even though, quite frankly, I had no technical training whatsoever. So, so did these guys at the university? Did they start to teach you, or or did you pretty much just start to learn the lingo and then gave it to them to do all the the uh, investigative work? Well, one of the things I've learned is that clearly, well, the more you learn, the more you realize there is to learn, and and I rely on a lot of uh, tremendous resources and experts and investigative agents to, to teach me. So I'm constantly learning them. And so with regard to that case, for instance, I, I was clearly taught the whole way along. In no way can I say I ever became an expert in anything. So. But that's a great education, though, at least that you know what to look for. I mean, enough to know to ask the right questions, probably. Well, no, and I, I think that's, as prosecutors, that's what we need to, to do is is become conversant enough in a certain topic to, to spot the issues, uh, know when we see true smoke and know kind of where we can direct the agents to find the fire, and then hold people accountable who are um, abusing victims. Yeah, you were way ahead of your time then. I mean, it was terrific. Now, you're also a member of a national network of assistant U.S. attorneys who provide all sorts of legal assistance in computer crime. Tell us about this network and what you're doing. Well, at the time that I prosecuted the, uh, the that first criminal copyright infringement case, um, there had been established a network through the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property section of the U.S. Department of Justice, and they had started to uh, identify assistant U.S. attorneys in each U.S. attorney's office throughout the country to become a part of this network so that they could be the go-to people for the federal investigative agents. And uh, again, the, the network was relatively new at the time, and because of the case I prosecuted, they asked me to join the network. Suddenly then, you were the guru, right? Well, well, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, I went to my first conference and realized that for two years running, uh, apparently they had made a uh, focused effort at each of the conferences to get assistant U.S. attorneys to utilize this new statute dealing with criminal copyright infringement, that, but no one had yet brought a case. And so uh, they were somewhat stunned that here I was a guy that had no training and didn't know anything about it, and, and yet I was the first one to do it. So, so I, I was recognized for that, and then I, um, I've, I've since plugged in there and learned an awful lot. And I regularly work with uh, FBI agents, Secret Service agents, uh, Customs Enforcement agents who deal with cybercrime-related issues, and oftentimes I'm the person that uh, they come to with regard to search warrants having to do with cyber-related crime, um, whether it's Internet fraud, identity theft. I also... For better or for worse, I have to deal with child pornography as well, um, because all that most of that now happens over the internet. Exactly. Um, but as a result, I'm the one that kind of gets trained in, and uh, inf- is enforced to learn what I, what I need to know about those things. Right, right. So you also have um, this year. I know we had talked recently, and you had done this uh, annual regional financial crimes and digital evidence conference too. So, right. You know, you're just all over the place. So, so when did you begin doing this, and, and how did that all start? Well, some time ago, I used when I first started with U.S. Attorney's Office, I dealt with primarily large narcotics cases, organizational cases, and I did a couple of large international cases. And as a result of the investigations I was involved in, oftentimes I saw you know very well-intentioned, well-trained agents literally stepping over evidence because they didn't recognize that it was relevant to their case. Right. And so I started way back then, somewhere in the mid-'90s, uh, starting evidence courses for investigators and prosecutors where I'd focus on different areas of evidence and, and different areas of investigation uh, so that we could all become better at what we did. And then at some point when I uh, transitioned to doing primarily computer-related crime or white-collar crime, rather than just deal with um, investigative evidence, I then uh, transitioned to financial crimes and, and digital evidence, which is what we see taking place all over the place. And so I've coordinated this uh, conference for about seven or eight years, and it's gone from just educating law enforcement investigators and prosecutors to our um, 
natural private sector counterparts, uh, financial institution fraud investigators, as well as uh, private sector um, um, risk or uh, loss investigators for large corporations, like, for instance, the GI Joes or Target Corporation. Um, and then also we invite auditors, the public sector uh, or uh, in- internal auditors, um, because those are the folks that are going to help keep everybody else honest uh, when no one else is. So, And we deal with everything from, oh gosh, uh, trends in fraud, uh, search and seizure issues, uh, legislative updates. And then we also really try to focus each year on what the specific training needs are based on those trends in fraud, and then bring in speakers to specifically address those training issues. Well, you know, I, I think that's terrific because what, what often happens when I've talked with law enforcement, they get frustrated that the in-house fraud investigators are not always allowed to even give, you know, work the case and help them. You know, it's like the, the companies have already lost money. They don't want to spend any more time and energy on investigating. They just want to move on. And so I think the fact that you're working inside a lot of the corporations, you're probably um, educating them as to how you can really help them prevent future fraud by actually doing the work and, and helping you. Do you find that, that it's changing well, absolutely, now? Absolutely. And one of, the, one of the things I learned long ago is that you know, we want to put everybody who has a piece of the puzzle in the same place, in the same room at the same time, getting the same information so everybody can move forward together. And, and one of the things I do at my conferences we have, because sometimes bank, the banking folks speak a different language than the law enforcement folks, for instance. Right. I have a, a, we've developed a law, law enforcement 101 um, session for banker folks, and we've developed a banking 101 session for law enforcement folks. So we get people talking, and I bring in regional um, investigators for the large financial institutions. Um, they clearly know what's taking place, and when I invite them in as speakers and recognize them as speakers, they're, um, they're superiors, uh, meaning the other officials at the banks whose attention we want to get about these issues recognize that they're valued and that they need to put more resources into what they're doing. Right. And the then I'm doing a couple other things to involve the financial industry and some of the solutions. And and while it's it, you know <laughs> as you know it's taken a while to get their attention, I think they're starting to recognize that it's worth their while to invest more in those uh, resources to prevent fraud. Exactly. Exactly. We're speaking this evening with a wonderful gentleman who is an assistant United States attorney in uh, beautiful Eugene, Oregon, and his name is Sean B. Hoare, and he is telling us about all the wonderful things that he's been doing and how he got involved in all of the uh, cybercrime investigations. You know, we're talking about the, um, you know, this this financial crimes and digital evidence conference, and one of the thoughts that I just would suggest to you is that when you've got the stakeholders, like it's terrific, you've got the financial industry and you've got the in-house investigators and you've got law enforcement You really need to have some um, people who are working directly with the victims, too, because I think often the victim side doesn't really get heard or the consumer side doesn't get heard. So just that's food for thought as as another stakeholder is the real victims out there getting involved and saying the people who are hearing what these victims are going through. I know you hear it as the prosecutors, but hearing from the victim side is really uh, uh, helpful, too. by the way, I was going to just to anchor that I, I completely agree, and in fact, at the National Identity Theft Seminar that I coordinate, that we just actually had last week, um, we have a specific session uh, session on on uh, victim related issues and and policies and legislation and outreach, and uh, we had a, a victim witness coordinator from the LA U.S. Attorney's Office there specifically to address those to- topics, as well as 
the uh, senior counsel for fraud prevention from the fraud section of the Department of Justice to address uh, policies to make sure that all assistant U.S. attorneys and federal agents in the room recognized how important that piece of the puzzle was. So I completely agree with you. It's a yeah, great idea. Yeah, because we hear from victims all the time who somehow, and I'm sure this doesn't happen with you, uh, knowing who you are and, and knowing all the great work you've done, but a lot of what happens is that the victims really get lost in the shuffle and, and their concerns don't get don't get heard and and their victim witness you know their victim witness statements don't get out there and they don't know that they're entitled to restitution and all these things that happen that they they come to us and say you know I didn't even know this was I didn't know there was a hearing or gee you know I I didn't even know that that my uh, my imposter pled you know I don't know what's going on nobody's keeping me informed and so that that's just a thought that I hear at least from the victim side who called me but Perfect. I, you know, uh, I, I think that's in California more than probably where you are. Oh no, I, I think it happens. It happens all over, and I think it's 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 healthy to keep that on the front of a radar. And I think another uh, something that I recently realized just this past year in a case I had was that oftentimes on the law enforcement side, meaning once it comes to my office to prosecute, one of my first things is is I want to know who the victims are, what their loss is, what the restitution amount is. And I find oftentimes if it's a financial institution, they charge back their losses, you know, as you well know, to a business. Right. Oftentimes, once that happens, we, we lose that on our radar. And so I'm trying to educate law enforcement that we need to go beyond just the, what you get from the financial institutions, because oftentimes that's our primary source of information. But we need to also ask for the chargebacks and then trace it back to individual businesses, as well as sometimes individual victims who we haven't previously identified. So that's really a critical piece. And, and again... We all can use the, use that information. You know, it's interesting in California, and I don't know if they've done this in Oregon or in many other states, but our, we have our identity theft statute was um, amended or now added to to include um, businesses can now file an identity theft report. In other words, if you're a doctor and someone has used your identity as the doctor or some kind of business, that you can sue for that as well if somebody opens up another um, business using your name. So that's right. something that we've added. I don't know if you have that in your state. Well, actually, on the federal level, that's one of the recommendations that have come out of the National Identity Theft Task Force is that we amend the identity theft, a federal identity theft statute to include organizations and businesses as well to specifically attack that sort of problem. Yeah. You know, let's talk about that because I know you were appointed to the Identity Theft Task Force, the President's Task Force. Let's talk about that and let's talk about what the recommendations were. Can we do that now? Oh, sure. You bet. All right, go ahead. Well, um, I guess it all started back in I guess May of 2006. Uh, sometime prior to that time, uh, the FTC had been working with the fraud section to try to get it on the national radar that we needed to really do something about the, our societal, in fact, the global identity theft problem. And finally, in May of 2006, uh, President Bush signed an executive order forming a national identity theft task force. And the primary purpose... And again, it was it was uh, some tremendous groundwork had been laid by the FTC and the fraud section for the Department of Justice to create a strategic plan to make the federal government's efforts more effective and efficient in the areas of awareness, prevention, detection, and prosecution of identity theft. Um, and as it turns out, um, an implementation order was created, uh, giving uh, well, creating four different subgroups to attack the problem. Uh, one subgroup was the uh, a criminal law enforcement subgroup. Another was um, a legislation and administrative action subgroup. 
another was education and outreach subgroup, and then a final was data security. And then for each subgroup, a couple individuals were asked to co-chair. And the task force um, was, uh, the membership of the task force was literally um, all the federal agencies that had any possible stake with regard to identity theft, meaning almost all of them. Right, like the Federal Trade Commission and the Social Security Administration, that kind of stuff. Everybody, everybody. Yeah. Uh, IRS, commerce, uh, yeah. Commerce, uh, and, and so it turns out that literally the directors of those, uh, the top-level uh, folks of all those agencies were members of the task force, and either they or their designated representatives served on a task force. And so it was it, it essentially it had the power to make something happen. All the decision-makers were there, or they were at least um, enabled with the decision-making power. And so it turns out on the criminal law enforcement subgroup, um, that implementation order provided that the assistant attorney general for the criminal division of the Department of Justice was going to be one co-chair, and then the chair of the White Collar Crime Subcommittee for the attorney general's advisory committees would be another co-chair. Um, I know there's a lot of names and stuff, but these are real significant entities within the Department of Justice. And it turns out the chair of that subgroup of the attorney general's advisory committee is the U.S. attorney for the District of Oregon, Karen Emmergut. And so Karen asked me then to assist her with this task force, and I became the only person outside of Washington, D.C. then to, to consult with the task force, and I just felt very fortunate to be able to plug in. Um, at some point, I was intimidated when I had to give presentations via <laughs> video, and I watched on the monitor, and I've got 30 people, all of whom are heads of federal agencies back in Washington, D.C., and I'm this little guy out in Eugene, Oregon. But, but at the same time, I think everybody worked very well together. Everybody was very well-intentioned, and I think we came out with some great recommendations. Let's talk about some of those recommendations. Okay. Um, well, each of the subgroups was charged with uh, trying to um, really look at the scope of the problem and come up with solutions within their, their area of expertise, whether it be data security, um, uh, legislation and administrative action, or, or, or law enforcement. And with regard to law enforcement, we came out with a, a number of recommendations, um, and I've got six pages of them. Okay. <laughs> but, I'll, but, you know, generally, though, with regard to prevention, prevention was a big piece for everyone. And just generally, before I get to specific law enforcement stuff, um, it was, you know, it was clear that federal agencies need to reduce the unnecessary use of Social Security numbers. And so we came up with some, the data security uh, subgroup came up with recommendations for that to occur. Uh, for national standards to be established to require private sector entities to safeguard personal data they compile and maintain and provide different no or notice to consumers when a breach occurs. So we really want to make sure that whatever's out there is more secure. Um, and then we also want to make sure uh, if you become a victim, you know about it immediately. Right. Um, also want to make sure it's, it's much more difficult to use the information if, in fact, it is stolen. So not only do you pr try to prevent access to it, you also prevent use of it. Um, two completely different prongs. Right. Um, and that's, that's hitting basically the, the industry side, the financial industry and the industry side, and having them be more careful before issuing credit or issuing services to, to someone who is a fraudster. Is that what you meant? Exactly. Just, yeah, on, on the beginning initiation side of it, yeah. Right. And so with regard to, um, well, with the decreased use of Social Security numbers, not only are they developing plans to m make sure the government reduces the, the unnecessary use of them, um, but they also want the government to develop a comprehensive private record, or private or comprehensive record on the private sector use of social security numbers, so we can truly determine how they're used in our society to get a better feel for how we can reduce the unnecessary use of them. Uh, I have a question, Sean. You know, sure. um, that's, we've been working on that all that stuff in California. We passed our limiting the use of social security numbers way back 
like in 2002, and we also created our security breach law back in 2003, and we, um, we've been worried about a lot of these things. The one question I had, and I don't know if it was even discussed, I know uh, Diane Feinstein had brought this up federally, but with the social security number, people call me all the time and I tell them, you know, take things out of your wallet, but if you're in the military, your military ID has your social security number on it. You're supposed to wear it. You're supposed to carry it at all time. You can't even get on base without it. And so, have they addressed the issue of Medicare, Medicaid, and the, and the um, you know the uh, military to take that number and make a unique number? You know, I hear from people in the military that 30 years ago, the social security number was not the ID number. Right. Um, and the Coast Guard, too, by the way, right. even has that. That's a great question. And my understanding is that that is a p part of the um, some of the recommendations and perhaps either rulemaking or legislative action coming out of this. That wasn't in my subgroup, but I know uh, we, we clearly uh, talked about it, made some recommendations to make sure it was dealt with by other subgroups, because I see that as well. And I've had a number of uh, situations where um, uh, uh, military personnel over in Iraq become uh, victims of identity yes. theft because of the public, unfortunately, the public display of their information in different forms um, or the easy access to it. So. Yeah, we have a grandson who's in the Air Force, and, you know, oh, his dog tag has the Social Security number right on it. And, you know, when he first got in, he was so excited, you know, he wore it out so everybody could see it, and I wanted to kill him. You know, and then right. and then you know the you know his ID to get on base. So uh, and then I, uh, one of the attorneys when I was doing a presentation on identity theft, uh, she is in the military and she showed me her card to get on base. Not only did it have her social, but her husband and her children's were all on, their social was all oh on that same goodness. card. I know it was insane. So yeah. and and yeah, and my husband has a captain's license and his. His, his license has the Social Security number on it, and that's, you know, that's a federal thing as well. So it just seems to me that here in California, you know, we, we initiated all this stuff with the Social Security number. So now if you have health insurance with Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or any of the health carriers, they cannot put your social as your uh, health, health insurance ID. So they've had to change, and many other things have changed. And then here we've got... You know, the federal government that still has these other <laughs> unique numbers, supposedly. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned. I've made a note to make sure I email some folks on the uh, task force just to make just to get a feel for what we're doing with that. But I know it was discussed, and I believe it was part of the recommendations yes. uh, coming out of the task force. Well, I thank you for doing that because it it just drives everybody crazy. You know, right, <laughs> well, we're well, trying to say. You know, and then every every website says don't put your social security number on anything, and and there are still some states, Sean, that have the social security number on the driver's license, and you can use an alternate number, but most people don't even realize. So here you're giving your social security number over when you give your driver's license to, you know, to show your uh, your check when you're trying to cash it or something. It's it's totally ridiculous. Well, and, and a whole a related issue that um, affected me and <laughs> a couple of years ago was that uh, Department of Departments of Motor Vehicles throughout the United States apparently are required by federal law to collect your social security yes. information, even if they don't use it, in order to comply with uh, an arc, I think it's a somewhat archaic law to make sure that they can track those folks who aren't paying their um, child support yes. or other types of uh, family support. Well, the bottom line is um, it's ineffective, or if, if in fact very little, if not if 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 not used at all for that purpose, 
And so what we've created is at least 50 different data repositories out there that might possibly be hacked or stolen. And <laughs> exactly. It just, so it just, anyway, I, I'm completely on board on that, and it's, yeah. uh, it's another issue that um, we're trying to deal with, but I'm not sure how successful we've been so far. I know, um, and then, you know, the Real ID Act is, is trying to help uh, help identify who people are. So, you know, in California, I sat on the DMV task force and they we're talking about privacy issues. And of course, in California, you cannot get a driver's license without showing your social security number and giving your thumbprint. But the but the reality is they don't do any matching. So, right. so again, what are you collecting this for but to have it in a database that we don't even know who has access to? So uh, it gets crazy. It's it totally insane, but I'm glad you're on that task force. So now, anytime I want to say anything that get done, I'm just going to write you an email and say, "Hey, Sean, bring this up." <laughs> well, I don't know how much power I have, but at least I can be a good conduit of information. I'll be glad to serve as that. So uh, yeah, and we appreciate that. So let's go on to what else? The recommendations because you're giving good um, ones. Yeah, there were some further things with regard to data security in the public sector. Um, a list of things in terms of. Uh, educating federal agencies about how to better protect data, how to monitor compliance, how to um, oh, establish national standards for private sector data protection, um, how to better educate the private sector, a lot of outreach, education, and then all best practices that are being developed and implemented. Um, with regard to prevention, a lot of uh, information or recommendations about how to make it harder to misuse consumer data if it happens to be stolen. Uh, again, a lot of education, best practices, recommendations coming out of that. Now, with regard to law enforcement, which is what I was specifically involved in, um, the specific in recommendations, again, were, were several, but I'll kind of walk through them. And I guess the, probably the primary one um, that people will recognize, a lot of these you may never see or, or know that have, that have occurred, but we're going to establish a National Identity Theft Law Enforcement Center. And it's, um, it's not, it hasn't been stood up yet, <laughs> but there's a, a legislative request in for funding, and it's a, our goal is to make sure that it's a common link with all databases so that law enforcement can pursue those offenders. For instance, uh, the FTC currently is a, a, what I refer to people as a, the na a national repository for identity theft complaints, but you also have the Internet Crime Complaint Center that is a national repository for Internet fraud-related complaints. They push over the identity theft complaints to the FTC. But then you have, you know, as many as, well, many, probably many hundreds of other databases uh, involving uh, law enforcement and other civil enforcement entities, and they don't all necessarily uh, talk with one another. And so our goal is to create one one center that is staffed by multiple federal agencies, multiple um, local and state agencies as well, so that we can respond to those cross-border issues, um, cross-jurisdictional issues, and make sure that we're able to follow up on all those complaints that are filed by consumers. So. Yeah, and it's it's much more than that, but that's that's the gist of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, I I sit as a sheriff reserve here in Orange County on the high tech crime unit, and so I'm always really worried about law enforcement and how how things are getting reported. And one of the things that I've been suggesting for a long time is that there be a a universal identity theft report. And in fact, we were talking about doing that just in California, because it's easier to do things just on a state level and then put a model out there for the feds to pick up. But it, it has, um, it's really unfortunate because you have these turf battles, but it seems to me that we, if we would uh, work on an identity theft report, um, that would be helpful for victims as well. I've talked to the Federal Trade Commission about this, and I know that was brought up at one of the meetings with, with the law enforcement, but 
the Fed, the uh, Fair Credit Reporting Act requires that once a victim becomes a victim, for them to clean up the mess with their credit report, they must prepare um, through law, some law enforcement agency, local, state, or federal, a, an identity theft report. And that report is used to be sent to the creditors and the credit reporting agencies, and it's required in order for a victim get it, to get his uh, credit report cleaned up or the credit uh, companies to stop harassing them. And yet, that was included in the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the FACT Act, which was the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction right. Act, but there was no <laughs> coordination with right. law enforcement. So lots of times the credit bureaus will say, this isn't a good enough report. Or the credit right. card companies will say, we won't stop harassing you because you haven't given us the appropriate information in the identity theft report, which must include all of the fraudulent information that's listed on the credit uh, profile. Right. So, so uh, you know, I hear well, it from the civil side, but also yeah. law enforcement. If everybody had the same, uh, you know, in data that they were collecting, it would be a lot easier. Well, you'll be very pleased to know that that's the... Uh, it's interesting you say that because I have six different categories of recommendations we made. The first one that I started talking about was coordination and information intelligence sharing. And the first recommendation under that was establish a national identity theft law enforcement center. The second recommendation is develop and promote the use of a universal identity theft report form. And I believe we actually already have that in hand, uh, primarily through the assistance of the FTC. Right, that's I what I've been asking him for the last exactly. five years. <laughs> so, so, so what we're doing, though, is we're going to be um, it's being vetted, I think, if, uh, assuming we have a, a, final, um, a final form. You'll see that this year being uh, sent throughout all law enforcement, uh, federal, state, local, county, et cetera, so that, and we'll be training people nationally, well, you know, breaking it down to regions and states, et cetera, about these uh, universal identity theft report forms to make sure everybody's using them. So, but before you, know, you do that, let me just tell you one thing i got to tell you, and that is that before you do that, you should meet with the financial industry and make sure that they will accept that. Because if they don't accept it, you may have this universal report that is not going to get the victims what they need. And, and right. that has been the experience that I've seen, even though the FTC has, has uh, probably, Joanna Crane was involved in that because I kept feeding her right. stuff to, of what to say. But unless you actually have a sign-off by the credit bureaus and the, and the major credit grantors saying, we will accept this as an identity theft report, and unless you do that, um, it will not really achieve its purpose. So it's just a caveat for you. No, and understood, and I'm glad you mentioned that. In fact, uh, Joanna Crane actually has been working with us on a part of the task force. In fact, she was present for most of the National Identity Theft Seminar that I coordinated last week. And so, um, I, well, I, she I knows because I've been asking her yeah. that for a long, long time. Right. But just, just to be sure, because I know the FTC will, will, is very good, and I love Joanna, and I, I think they're terrific. The problem is, is unless you get all the stakeholders and say, yes, we're going to sign off on this, and this, we will accept this, um, you may have a problem. So right. that's the kinds of things that happen all the time, <laughs> as you oh, know. That, that's a, no, yes, I appreciate that, and that's, um, you're right on target. <laughs> yeah. So, we're well, just trying to introduce you again, because if people are just listening okay, in, sure. we, we are uh, speaking with a wonderful, dedicated United States attorney, Sean Hoare, who is from the uh, Eugene, Oregon, from the United States Department of Justice, and he's he's an expert on cybercrime, identity theft. He's sitting on the President's Identity Theft Task Force, 
and uh, all the way out in Oregon, even though everybody else is in D.C. So he's uh, he's very special, and we're real proud to have him on here. So let's let's get back to that. What else is um, is, is coming down with this identity theft task force? Well, un- under the category of uh, coordination of information and intelligence sharing, we really want to enhance the information sharing between law enforcement and the private sector, which, again, goes to the point you just made with regard to the acceptance of the universal identity theft report form. And so we're working with the private industry or the financial industry to enhance the ability of law enforcement to receive the information from financial institutions that they're legitimately able to obtain. Um, we're initiating, we've already initiated discussions with the financial services industry on, on countermeasures to identity theft, making sure that they're doing everything they can to be proactive and prevent it from at the outset. And then also uh, we're in conversation with the uh, credit bureaus or credit and credit reported agencies on, again, being more proactive, preventing identity theft, and then making sure that any response to it is, is appropriate. Um, under the, the category of coordination with foreign law enforcement, we have a number of recommendations, um, basically trying to reach out to uh, foreign countries to make sure, first of all, we, uh, that they enact suitable domestic legislation criminalizing identity theft. Because oftentimes, as you probably know, when, say, somebody commits identity theft in another country against one of our citizens and we want to file a a criminal action against that, we can't retrieve that body, if you will. We can't prosecute that criminal because there's no reciprocal statute in that country. And oftentimes, our extradition uh, treaties provide that it has to be the crime that we're trying to prosecute here also has to be a criminal offense in that country. So that's Mm -hmm. a, a critical piece for holding people outside our borders accountable for committing identity theft against our citizens. Um, well, Sean, what about what about these um, cyber uh, identity thieves in Russia who are sitting at their, you know, in their kitchen table committing identity theft? Do we have uh, anything going on reciprocally with uh, with Russia and and? Actually, we've had some semblance of success, but what we're one of the uh, actually the the third of five recommendations in this area is to identify the nations that provide safe havens for identity thieves uh-huh. and use all measures available to encourage those countries to change their policies. <laughs> so, wh- which countries are we talking about? Can you tell us? You know, there's a list. I'm trying. Um, if, just give me a couple names, a couple countries. Well, um, parts of Russia right. um, that we've... That's what I was thinking, the Eastern Bloc, you know. Exactly, Uzbekistan. Um, you know, Nigeria is, a, is a, unfortunately, uh, mm. some very good people there, but we have a, a also a very corrupt uh, uh, part of the populace and the part of the government. And so we, uh, you know, the 419 scam has been around for years, but... Oh, yeah, the Nigerian fraud schemes, we've heard about those millions of us, yeah. Right. And unfortunately, they're becoming more sophisticated every day and really involved in and billions and billions of dollars of counterfeit check cashing fraud that may also involve identity theft. Um, so that's a company or a country that always um, steps out of my mind. Um, but a lot of it's the old Eastern Bloc countries where, unfortunately, you've got syndicates who literally work full time to hack into our systems, to uh, steal and trade credit cards online. It's a you know multi-billion-dollar industry for them, and they literally work full-time to access our information, and they're unfortunately very good at it. I mean, we're having a hard enough time prosecuting and getting, um, you know, identity thieves in this country, let alone to try and work with people in the other countries. Right. Yeah. Um, well, what about, well, what the, about what, North Korea? You know, it may be. I, I, um, I have to admit, um, Mari, that um, I, it hasn't been on my radar. Okay, I, okay. I, but, um, they but might not actually, be as techy as some of these other countries. Well, sometimes their access to their citizen popular citizen access to information or their their um, infrastructure right. may not be as good. But it doesn't take much anymore. Exactly. What we're, what How we're, about outsourcing when 
We have so many companies right. that are outsourcing now. And, and remember that case of the Pakistani woman who wasn't getting paid uh, for uh, the medical records that she was transcribing. Right. And so she just went ahead and said, if you don't pay me, I'm going to put this stuff on the Internet. And she did with people's right. Social Security number and their medical history. Well, no, and that's a ch- that's a challenge. Most of the time, when you're dealing with any um, tech support, for instance, for whatever type of commodity you're dealing with, uh, oftentimes it is in a foreign country. Oftentimes, you know, India is a huge um, uh, base for that. Right. It's a very well-educated populace, but unfortunately, when uh, it's a human condition and where there's an opportunity, sometimes greed takes over. So, but what we're trying to do is, as among the recommendations, is, is to reach out to foreign countries that will allow us to and go in and assist in training their law enforcement and their private sector personnel to, to prevent these things or hold people accountable. Um, I've actually been outside the country with Secret Service doing some training. Um, the FBI also does that to some extent, but uh, Secret Service actually does a wonderful job uh, going traveling to many different countries with law enforcement personnel to teach other law enforcement personnel um, about the problem. And uh, the, United, the Department of Justice, through its Computer Crime and Intellectual Property section, has a large network of countries that are, are currently cooperative and uh, but also see the need for better training. And so we as prosecutors actually go out over there. We teach their judges, their prosecutors, as well as their investigators about how to investigate these types of offenses to uh, better shore up their systems. So, Does that have something to do with Interpol? Uh, they're involved to some extent, but um, not all the time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that must yeah. be fun at least to get to go over there and, and see what's really happening. And, and, and you know, <laughs> once you build a relationship with them, maybe you can help them to, to help you in these investigations. Well, that's the goal, is you, you develop rapport um, and as, as, to the extent that they have a legal infrastructure to work with, and then we have um, the, the human infrastructure or the human personnel to work with. We can accomplish some tremendous things, and we have, um, but there's an awful lot of work to do. <laughs> I know. Um, so are you seeing more, at least it seems to me, that... You know, as identity theft has evolved, we've got, we passed the, uh, you know, in 2003, the Fair and Acre Credit Transaction Act, which was supposed to really decrease identity theft, although we found that it has, identity theft has increased in, in tremendously, and the Gartner study said for the year 2006, it, there was 15 million new victims. So why do you, I mean, first of all, do you agree that it's increasing, and why do you think it's increasing? Um, I guess, again, this is just my own personal opinion, is that um, unfortunately I do see I, I, it, it probably is on the rise, largely due to large data repositories uh, that have been hacked, breached, sometimes with knowledge of the, the holder of the information and sometimes without the knowledge. Uh, it's estimated by some entities that perhaps um, 70% of all the credit cards that are currently issued or in circulation have already been compromised. Uh, it's just a question of when that criminal action will take place. And, and oftentimes, the syndicates in Eastern Europe, for instance, that are uh, accessing credit card information from whatever source, uh, they won't use it immediately. They'll may, they've got so much information, so many millions of card numbers, that oftentimes they may not use it for six months after the time that they've stolen it. So the victim has no clue as to how the information was obtained, where it was obtained, and there's really no recourse. At least uh, law enforcement can't do anything because there's no way to track it back to a, an instant of fraud, if you will. Right. Um, and because that's the case, there's, because there's so much information out there um, in cyberspace, if you will, unfortunately it's going to continue to explode as, as far as I'm concerned. 
Oh, yeah. And, you know, with these huge data breaches that I know your Identity Theft Task Force has discussed a little bit you know, in terms of, you know, trying to have notification to victims like we have in California and many other states, um, what what is unfortunate is, like you said, I hear from a lot of law enforcement that the uh, when they get that much data that these fraudsters just keep it and use a little bit at a time and use it later. And what happens is a lot of these companies offer monitoring for three months, you know, <laughs> which right. does nothing because then people are, are not recognizing that, oh, well, I wasn't bothered in three months. Everything's okay. I don't need to have credit monitoring anymore. And right. then they get hit later. And, right. and that's when they, they don't even know what's going on. What about, okay, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I, I, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and that's where, you know, the consumer piece comes in, and you can only do so much to protect yourself, but as you well know, just some ba basic things like well, looking at your billing cycle and making sure you actually look at your bills, and if you see something that's out of whack, report it immediately. Because and, 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 uh, I'm not sure that you can necessarily prevent identity theft at this point because our information is out there in so many different repositories, but the key is to be aware of your own surroundings and be aware of what you can do to detect it should you become a victim and then, uh, re and then respond immediately. Yeah, um, I mean, that early intervention, at least you can stop it. If you, if you see your credit reports, you can at least see an inquiry. Right. But, you know, I get a lot of identity theft, terrible stuff that people will call me about criminal identity theft, Sean. They, they get stopped for speeding and then they're arrested or right. they, get, they get, you know, somebody comes to their office and handcuffs them or, you know, that's somebody using your identity with, that will not appear on a credit report or they find out that somebody's been using their social security number to work. Right. and to, you know, have employment, and then the IRS comes after them 10 years later. So what, what, was there anything in the task force dealing with non-credit identity theft, something that doesn't appear in your credit report, whether it's, um, you know, workers' comp identity theft or health care identity theft or disability identity theft or insurance identity theft? There's all these kinds of things that I hear about all the time. What all, was that addressed? That, yeah, all of that's encompassed by the federal identity theft statutes. Any, if anybody uses a means of uh, identification um, to commit a, a certain federal crime or state, a certain type of state crime, statute's a bit more ex extensive than that. But the bottom line is if somebody uses any uh, name or number or combination thereof that specifically identifies an individual, they can be held accountable, again, assuming there's an interstate nexus, of federal identity theft. So sure. it's not restricted to, to credit-related information or, or social security numbers. It's anything that specifically identifies an individual. Um, there are a couple other uh, um, approaches and initiatives that were recommended, some of which have already been taken. Um, again, to, to try to get at all those identity thieves, um, one of the things that have already been implemented uh, is, was to designate an identity theft coordinator for each U.S. attorney's office to design a specific identity theft program for that district. And that's so that whether it's in Eugene, Oregon, or L.A., or San Francisco, or Seattle, Washington, or where, however rural or metropolitan the, the, the district is, that a program be crafted specifically to deal with the landscape there. Um, you're going to have different types of identity theft-related problems, and we want to make sure that the programs are fast enough to deal with those problems. Um, we also wanted to make sure that every U.S. Attorney's Office evaluated their monetary thresholds, because as you know, <laughs> right. you've probably heard m many, many officers complain about the fact that prosecutors won't take their cases or 
uh, certain federal agency want to investigate their cases because they haven't suffered a hundred thousand dollars in loss. Exactly. And what I learned a long time ago is that in identity theft related cases or certain types of internet fraud related cases, oftentimes the numbers start out very very small. The victim numbers are very very small as well. But the more you investigate, the more you find. You're finding more victims. You're finding larger losses. And ultimately, if you have a monetary threshold, by simply allowing the investigator to investigate, you'll reach that threshold. But what I've always done is waive the monetary threshold, and now the Department of Justice is recommending that we waive those thresholds so that every U.S. Attorney office, U.S. Attorney's office can be as flexible as they need to be to approach the identity theft problem. Um, we also wanted to really um, utilize the creation of working groups and task forces. Again, depending on the nature of the district, um, the rural or metropolitan nature, different things will work. But we've, we've created some model programs that people can follow uh, to implement wherever they are in the country to make sure that we're really collectively using using the resources we have so we're not duplicating or wasting our resources. Um, I know we have a great task force in L.A. They were the ones who actually found the choice point problem, if you right. remember. Yeah, and they... the. Why don't you explain the local task force? Because those those really are some of those are terrific. Really doing great job. Well, oftentimes at a local level, um, you've got um, detectives that are specifically assigned from different agencies, and they if 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 you have a, you're fortunate and have one of those task forces, you'll actually have at least one detective from any given police agency that is assigned full time to work solely on identity theft related matters. Uh, generally, they have a prosecutor that's attached to them as well so that they have somebody, again, on the ground ready to receive the cases uh, once they're made against different offenders. Uh, so you, you can you know, create quite a caseload and hold a number of people accountable. Um, oftentimes, unfortunately, those task forces are only in larger metropolitan areas because those are the, the only agencies that sometimes have the resources, meaning the financial and personnel resources, to solely dedicate, dedicate an agent to identity theft. So in those areas where we can't use task forces, We've come up with a concept called working groups, a meaning here in the Willamette Valley, for instance. Uh, we don't have the resources to even have one federal agent assigned solely to identity theft. But what I do is I utilize detectives and agents from multiple agencies uh, to work with me on identity theft cases as they happen to arise. And they know that I'm there to serve as a prosecutor, so we work well together creating those cases and then uh, taking offenders federal if need be. I have counterparts at the local level who also are designated to take those cases locally if, in fact, it's not a federal case. But it gets a loosely associated group of investigators and prosecutors, all of whom want to hold more people accountable, but we simply don't have the resources to allocate folks full-time. But nonetheless, we're still holding people accountable. So you just got to do what you can do to utilize your resources the best you can. You know, we, we passed a law in California that you could now prosecute the identity theft case either in the jurisdiction where the identity thief was committing the crime or where the identity victim, the identity theft victim lived. Do you have that in, um, in as the, one of the task force recommendations federally or what? Well, that currently is, exists under federal law, and oh, I've done does. cases under both scenarios. I've okay. done cases where I've got a victim here and a defendant somewhere else, or I've got a defendant here and victims all over the place. So you can prosecute anywhere? Yes. Oh, they can do that. Okay, that's what we had to do in California. Lloyd wanted me to ask you a question because he had read that there were 20 million illegal um, people here using stolen Social Security numbers. I know I get people calling me all the time saying, you know, I found out that, that somebody's been using my Social Security number to work or to collect mm -hmm. workers' comp. So what, what about that? How is that being addressed? That's a, a great question, and the, the number does not surprise me. Um, okay. 
what, at least what, what I know I'm doing is um, I'm working with the uh, Social Security Administration Office of Inspector General. We've got some great agents at Oregon, and I've uh, created a situation where they work with local um, detectives. And if I find that anybody is using somebody else's Social Security number, um, we're gonna, we, we do our best to hold those people accountable. I have a number of cases right now where somebody is coming into the country illegally, and typically is, before they arrive or shortly after they arrive, they've got a, a, a looks like a, a perfect Social Security card, but unfortunately it's in their name with a, a number of an identity theft victim. Right. They also have a birth certificate in the name of the identity theft victim, and the identification documents are pr- very professionally made. Oh, yeah, now they, it's so high-tech, right? Oh, exactly, and then they then go to work and for whatever reason. Sometimes they're here tr- truly just to work. Sometimes they're here to get identification so that they can then sling dope. I've done a lot of cases uh-huh. where we've got folks whose, whose primary purpose was to get other identification documents so they could kind of meld into our society and then distribute heroin and methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. And I've prosecuted those as well for identity theft related as well as narcotics offenses. But what we do is um, what happens is, as you well know, the victim ultimately gets a notice from the IRS saying, hey, buddy, um, yeah. either you haven't paid your taxes for this income you're, you're working up here or that earned income credit really doesn't belong to you because you make more than isn't you're entitled to. Right. And th- the victim has no idea that somebody in another state is working with their Social Security number. Um, until and, uh, that so happens, I'm, yeah. Until that happens. <laughs> and so they get taxed. If the, if the person hasn't been paying taxes, they'll get assessed the taxes and the penalties. Right. And, uh, and it creates a terrible situation. So what I do is I then um, I, I charge those uh, uh, illegal immigrants with aggravated identity theft um, because they've misused that uh, uh, person's Social Security number. Um, and do you contact the victim so they know and then they, they you can help them to clear their, their case with the IRS, maybe prevent the IRS coming from coming after them? Yes, and what we do is we refer them to the, it's called the Taxpayer Advocacy Office. Um, right. And it's an office that was created some time ago, I think primarily to deal with this type of issue. Um, and I'm, again, I, I can't uh, uh, vouch for the type of relief they're getting, but at least I make I do my best to make sure that if a federal agency is 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 hassling them, the federal agency knows that in fact they're a victim of identity theft. So, yeah, that's that's a real problem. How about are you experiencing anything experiencing anything with mortgage fraud? I just got a horrible horrible case um, that someone called me today that someone had gone in, and we're we're hearing a lot about this. And someone had um, gotten a, the, the, the property was paid off, it was a family property, it was paid off, and someone got a loan against it. Right. And now they're foreclosing on the property. And right. she is, you know, her family is just, you know, they, they are just shocked. They don't know how to deal with it. Obviously, I was giving her some things to deal with. But are you seeing a lot of that kind of a thing where a lot of mortgage fraud people are using somebody else's identity and stealing their houses out from under them? I'm aware that that's happening. I haven't personally prosecuted a case, but I've I've heard about the cases being prosecuted, and I think we're going to see much more down the road. So what do you think, you know, uh, Sean, what do you see as the largest contributing factor to the problem of identity theft? Well, you know, it's a multi-pronged issue. Um, Some of it involves consumers, some businesses, some organizations, and and certainly the government. Um, And it's a combination of us being a trusting society, although I think enough people have been burned that we're getting over that. But I think, unfortunately, the um, the data security policies simply haven't been there, and we haven't put invested the resources in uh, the preservation of that data or the protection of that data as we should. And so, again, it's a, it's a combination of many factors, um, but we haven't done enough prevention, and then we haven't put the resources in for detection and apprehension. 
Um, so I, quite frankly, one of my biggest concerns is simply all the large data repositories out there and the, the possible lack of security, because any one of those has millions and millions of identification or, or consumers' um, identification records, um, and all they need is a social security number, and they can completely destroy a person's credit history. Right, and and, and worse, and worse. Besides the credit history, they oh, can absolutely. I've, <laughs> as you as you have, I've dealt with uh, people who have been arrested based on warrants issued against other people who have assumed their name, and I've had to go back to um, cross jurisdictional lines to actually go back to the original uh, issuing agency and work with them to have the warrant pulled against the identity of that victim. So again, some people can completely assume a person's identity and, and uh, it often starts with a, a social security number and oftentimes that can be obtained from these um, uh, data re- repositories that aren't pro- uh, properly secured. Right, so and I you know, we know now, problem. yeah, we, um, if you look at the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, their chronology of the data breaches, since February 2005, when we had that first big one, which was the, you know, the choice point, there have been just, you know, hundreds, I mean, millions and millions of data breaches. I think it's over 50 million uh, records have been acquired by unauthorized people. So we're talking about many, many millions, and many people listening to this, including me, have gotten those letters saying, you know, your information has been compromised. Ironically, ironically, you know, as I was was coordinating this national seminar on identity theft, and I was one of the first speakers talking about the statutory sections and uh, charging decisions that prosecutors have to make. And the day before I left, I got a letter from my credit card company that told me that they had been breached as well. And so I, I read that to the yep. to the, the class. <laughs> it can happen to anyone. Well, Lloyd says we have, what, one minute, two minutes left? Okay, so I just want to ask you generally, just something quick. What do you believe must be done right now to, to really curb this problem? Well, I think the first thing is that all the recommendations of the National Identity Theft Task Force have to be implemented. And that involves some behavioral changes. Um, it involves some legislative action, um, but if all of those recommendations are actually implemented, we're going to be much better a year or two from now than we are now. And it's not going to stop there. We all have got to be much more proactive about how we use um, our own personal information, and uh, businesses, organizations, and the government have to be much more diligent about how they secure the, the, the information if they've uh, necessarily received it. Yeah, and we're going to have to see. We don't we don't know what's going to happen with legislation to have national security breach less legislation and what we can do to really, you know, curb that problem of all these security breaches and the other whole issue of, of dirty insiders getting access. That's a, that's a whole other issue, too. But Lloyd says it's time to go. Sean, you are so wonderful, and we appreciate all your time. And, and um, we're going to have people go to the ftc.gov slash ID theft so that they can get more information about what to do. And also, even the United States uh, Department of Justice has a great website at usdoj.gov and then, of course, consumer.gov forward slash ID theft. And we're going to have to have you back on next year and tell us what's going on. Okay, well, thanks for all you do. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you so much, Sean. You've, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. We've been speaking with Sean B. Hoare, an assistant United States attorney of the Department of Justice in Oregon. And we uh, 
have a wonderful website that you can go and learn more about him and listen to our previous guests, interviews, and download our podcast at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Mari and Lloyd. You've been a great engineer. Join us next week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. If a Middle-Earth elf lived today in Southern California, how would she celebrate and support the arts, music, and her community? What would Arwen do? Thursdays, 4 to 5 p.m. with me, Tani Tanuvio, on KUCI 88.9 FM and streaming live at KUCI.org. Ellen Salalumin Amentielvo. 